The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone, and a special welcome to anybody who's new today. It's always great to see folks willing to walk in the door, and I know, I think a lot of us here at the center know it's not always easy to walk into a new place, so just want to admire the courage, and please let us know how we can make this place feel safe and welcoming for you. And uh, check in if you have any questions. Happy to let you know more about the place. So I thought I'd call the talk today, the talk and discussion, Understanding Conceit and the Heart's Release. We use that phrase a lot in Buddhist practice. Uh, One place in the talks uh, that were recorded from the Buddha, not with a tape recorder, of course, (laughs) But uh, orally, actually, for many centuries, the talks are just passed down orally. And then, oh, I don't know, 500 years or so after the time of the Buddha, they actually got written down originally on leaves of paper, uh, I mean uh, plant leaves. And they'd put some kind of juice on the leaf. They'd kind of scratch it out. And then they'd have these one leaf on top of another and they'd have two like wooden pieces of wood to kind of hold the leaves together and they'd, carry around these huge baskets with all the recorded teachings. So you can understand as difficult as it was to keep it an oral tradition, it was also difficult in the tropics especially to have written, you know, the talks written down. But one of the phrases the uh, the Buddha was reportedly spoke about the fruit or the sort of natural development of our mindful awareness practice is the unshakable release of the heart. Right? A heart that isn't bound up, isn't afraid, isn't confused, even not confused by confusion. Right? So just Because we always have a way of turning any description of awakening into some ideal, some place out there that a human being gets to when they're perfect. And, you know, so we have these ideas of a saint being perfect, looking perfectly, acting perfectly. As opposed to maybe a more useful way of holding that spiritual development as a kind of more and more profound comfort with imperfection, with messiness, what what is still unfinished in terms of the development of our own personality and unfinished in terms of the sort of development or um, wisdom of our culture, of our communities. Freedom with that. And so... How does conceit? Conceit is sort of an interesting thing the Buddha talked about because it it really, first of all, it doesn't go away until the very, very end of practice. Cause conceit, that habit, because that's what it is, it's a mental habit of organizing our experience around a sense of self. And in a more direct way, it's a 
sense of self that we imagine is better than or worse than or even the same as. So whenever the mind is inserting that kind of comparing mind, that fixation, like placing myself in some kind of hierarchical system, that's called conceit. So even if you have the conceit that, hey, we're all in this together, you know, we're all the same, right? So in terms of Buddhist psychology, that's still a conceit. And if we pay attention, we'll notice it's stressful. Even to have what some people might consider to be a skillful thought, like, hey, we're all the same. But if the mind is clinging to that, then there's unnecessary tightness in the mind. Like, do we need to know? Like, do we need to know where, how we stack up right now in order to sort of function as a human being? We don't, in a lot of moments, maybe the great majority of moments, we don't need to know. Like, better than, worse than, same as. It's just an unnecessary construction that the mind then has a habit of clinging to, getting attached to, identifying with. There's an old story, um, I'm not sure where it originated, and it's not from the time of the Buddha, but in, it's just a story about the Buddha, made-up story about the Buddha and a farmer. Many of you have heard me tell this many times. But it really, I think, points out about conceit. So somebody, a farmer, was searching for a long time to talk to the Buddha because he had some complaints, like the weather is unpredictable. And my family members, they're unpredictable. And the farm animals are unpredictable. And it's a problem. You know? <laughs> and so he, was, he thought, oh, I'll go complain to the Buddha. So he did. He eventually tracked him down, complained to the Buddha. The Buddha said, everybody has 83 problems. And there's nothing I can do. And even if somehow I had some clever strategy for you to get rid of one of your problems, you'd end up with another problem anyway. Because that's just what it is to be a human being. There are a lot of problems the self has. And so the farmer stomps away, unsatisfied by the Buddha's response. But before he was out of earshot, the Buddha yells at him, I might be able to help you with your 84th problem. <laughs> right? I can't help you with your 83 problems, but your 84th I might be able to help you with. And so the, Buddha, the farmer came back, you know, okay, what? You know, what's my 84th problem? You probably, those of you who haven't heard this probably even can guess. You don't like having 83 problems. That's the 84th problem. Not liking having 83 problems. And this, this really helps us understand conceit as a problem. Because conceit is the attachment or a fixation with self-view, like that hierarchical sense, where I fit in. Placing myself, placing the sense of me somewhere, right? which we almost always do. So this isn't, I mean, we'll notice it when it's really strong or toxic. We'll notice the selfing, the conceit, right? Or, or we'll notice someone else's conceit. But most of the time, we're operating with conceit, but we're just unaware of it because it's so normal, so ordinary, and we're kind of codependent, like I support whatever conceit you're sort of living with in this moment if you support whatever conceit I'm living. I mean, even something very simple. I'm having a difficult day. 
to whatever degree my mind has this conceit that that's me, the one, I'm the one who's having the difficult day. Not the not de- debating that there's a difficult day being experienced, but the sense that that difficult day is owned places me somewhere as opposed to the days that are good, those who are having a good day or a better day or a worse day. So we don't think all this through, but it's sort of implied in the mind. And it's experienced as a kind of tension. And one way I heard a teacher mention this is this shift, like beginning to be able to recognize conceit in our minds and to recognize conceit operating in other people's minds is to notice the difference between the problems the self has and the problem the self is or the problem that selfing is. Or more traditionally in Buddhism, we, we call it I-making, the letter I-making, and mind-making, M-I-N-E, I and mind making, right? That activity, it's a present moment activity of building, fixing, holding to a sense of self. And of course, it's all over the map how we do this. Sometimes the way we're eye-making or mind-making or selfing is quite toxic. The kind of self the mind, the thinking mind is constructing and clinging to is a very unhealthy sense of self. And other times, it's a relatively healthy sense of self, right? So it's all over the map. But clinging, identifying with any sense of self is always stressful. And now here's where the problem comes in. Then the mind, the thinking mind, the selfing mind thinks, I should stop this. I should stop selfing. But we don't realize that's just another way of selfing. Like, I'm the one who doesn't have an identity, is our identity. But once again, we're unconscious. So the problem with identity is the unconsciousness of it. Identity is not a problem. We need concepts. We need identity. We need views, opinions, beliefs. But we have to understand what they are. They're a way of kind of illuminating the present moment, surprisingly. Right? Thoughts are either a problem or they're a help. We, it's just too simplistic to think th- thoughts are just a problem or views are just a problem. It's really a question whether they're being used as a tool or whether they're being used in the mind as a way to try to escape the unpleasant feeling of things being open and undefined. So if we work with that um, understanding the problem the self is, right, or just more generally trying to understand suffering, we can see how view and identity can really help us illuminate experiences of suffering. But if we cling to, like, let's say we see something, let's say in our, our intimate relationship that we have, we use some views, some identities. You know, my partner is the one, you know, this person, they are always dominating me in this way, in this part of my life. Never really seeing me. Never really available. Right? So I'll have a 
an identity of being the victim and an identity for the other person of, of being the oppressor, right? Or you might have it the other way, like, oh yeah, I'm really off in that place. I'm bad. This person I'm taking advantage of. But you see, like having these different lenses or frames, you know, like being the one who has power and is misusing it, or being the one who doesn't have power, right? That can really illuminate the situation for us, right? Help us see it and feel into it, and perhaps even get a sense of how to work with it skillfully, what might need to be done. But if we use the, the identity and cling to it, hold to it, as if it, in a way, permanently defines who I am, what I am, then it becomes sort of a ball and chain. It gets in the way of actually liberation, freedom, being more skillful in healing, just a sim- simple healing that can happen in relationships. And of course, this happens everywhere in all of our relationships and our relationships to sort of bigger systems in our culture and our simple relationships, even in our relationships to our pets. There is no place that identity, conceit, doesn't operate. So conceit is when, I, when there's an unconscious holding to identity. Again, so it's not that identity is a problem. It's totally necessary, useful way to illuminate the dance of relationships, all of the you know, web of relating we have as human beings. You know, we're social beings, if you haven't noticed. Even if you're sort of call yourself, see yourself as a hermit, you know, that's your way of relating. <laughs> you know, like avoidance, that's your dance. And so the, the interesting question is, are our patterns of relating, are they stressful? How do they entangle the mind, the heart, and then the body in a way as the innocent victim expressing the entanglements of the mind and heart, right? When our mind and heart is unconscious and tight and afraid and greedy, manipulative, angry, disconnected, then the body is sort of the dumping ground of, you know, one moment after another, these mental strategies that are off, that are tight, get laid down on the body, you know, and it's no wonder that our body feels so tight at the end of the day, so heavy, so numb, so whatever, because the body is the innocent, really, it's like, the, <laughs> I mean, we don't see these. It would be so interesting if we did. The landfill sites, you know, where all our garbage goes. You know, can you imagine if every day, you know, we had a good view of the landfill, you know, and the enormity of the landfill. If, if only our own contribution, cumulative over the years. It's not that different than what's being laid down in the body. In Buddhism, we call this karma, like the chant we did at the beginning of the set, right? It's these impressions. They're not, like I said, out there, somebody, you know, guy, white-skinned, big-bearded guy, you know, keeping track of who's good and bad. It's not that, like we've been 
sort of taught in our culture, the impressions are laid down right here in the heart, in the body. And so this can motivate us, like how, <laughs> like, just like seeing the landfill sites might motivate us to live more simply. Being more sensitive, more mindful of the body can train us to be more sensitive to how we're living our lives. Because we see at the end of each day, at the end of each week, at the uh, each time we have a birthday, we can start to see. And, we can, and once we start to feel and sense it in our own body, we can see and sense it in other people's bodies too, like the backpack of stress that the 40 pounds or 50 pounds or... And it's not even just our own personal stress, it's cultural stress and trauma too that we lug around with each with us. You know, and all the ways that oppression and suffering happens in our society around gender, around sex, around race, around power and class. So this can either, either make us want to live a more distracted life because it seems too much and overwhelming, give me a good TV show, <laughs> or it can make us want to wake up like, I don't want to add another layer to this. I don't want to contribute any more weight, any more psychic weight to what we're all dragging along. Is there a way? Is there a way forward in a different direction, in the direction of that un shakeable release of the heart that the Buddha talks about. Well, not just the Buddha, but people talk about. right? And, and doesn't it make sense that if we can move in the direction of carrying more and more psychic weight, that we shouldn't also be able to move in the direction of carrying less and less psychic weight with us? right? It should be able to go both directions. And this is where these teachings, right? because you could hear the teaching around conceit, and then we could have a conceited view like, okay, I'm done with conceit. No more conceit with me. But that's not the path. The path is to get interested in conceit, to really observe it externally in others and internally in ourselves. Oh, this is what the Buddha means by conceit. Oh, look at this. Attached to the idea of being the same as. Right? It's like, Oh, we have dessert. Honey, we're going to have dessert together. Let's cut the piece so we have the same size piece. Right? No, there's nothing wrong with that idea. But if you were the one cutting the pieces, and then to cling, okay, it's the same. We're the same. We have the same size pie. It's okay. Or that it wouldn't be okay. Like I washed the breakfast dishes. I washed wash the lunch dishes, it's dinner dishes. It's not fair, right? Because I'm clinging to the idea of, you know, we're equal. It should be the same. But it's not always that way, right? Sometimes things are the same, sometimes better, sometimes worse. It's just interesting to have that fluid sense. Because a lot of times, like in especially common ground circles, there can be this sort of unconscious idea that hierarchy is bad. <laughs> but where in nature have you seen no hierarchy? 
right? You know, this sort of way of parenting that, you know, kids, they've got the divine in them. (laughs) We should just let them, (laughs) let the divine express itself, you know. But where does that lead? But, But clearly we've got problems with people clinging to hierarchical systems, right? So, It's like we want a simple answer, but there's not a simple answer. Well, I shouldn't say maybe it's a simple answer, but it's not an easy answer, right? Because it's it's understanding conceit, understanding hierarchy, understanding view, right? Without being confused by it. So that when there is in our mind, in our heart, I'm better than. I'm more skilled than, I'm probably more skilled than this other person or these other people in this situation. I'm probably less skilled, less aware, less competent in this area. I'm probably about the same. We're not sort of using that temporary idea that has arisen in our mind as a sort of permanent sense of self. You know, it's just how it seems right now. But it's fluid, like it's moment to moment where maybe it's not, maybe I'm not right. But we have to navigate this all the time. You know, when we're in situations, who's going to do what? And sometimes, like this whole thing of meritocracy really needs to be unpacked in our society because there's some pretty powerful presumptions in, in any kind of meritocratical system. I'm not sure what the right word is, but... You get the idea that that somehow we can actually evaluate just on a simple, you know, around a simple thing like a competence, whatever the competence might be, you know, doing word puzzles, or doing math puzzles, or, you know, jumping over a bar, you know. It's like that we can really evaluate and even say then what that means. Well, they can jump over this bar and this person couldn't jump over that bar. That's what it means. doesn't mean anything beyond that. But sometimes, you know, like in society, we do have all these sort of hoops or hierarchical systems that we have to live with one way or another. And the question is, how can we exist in these places without suffering and without causing other people suffering? The first step, I think, is just to do our own work at understanding how conceit or selfing, eye-making, mind-making works in our own heart. To really see that if there's any clinging to a sense of self, it's like an underlying irritant. The Buddha likens it to a fish flopping on the ground when it's out of water, if you've ever seen that, you know, hoping to flop back into the water, frantic, right? There's a kind of often low-grade irritant in our heart because on some level, however the mind establishes itself with a conceit, better than, worse than, same as, whatever the identity that the mind is clinging to, it won't ultimately be satisfied. It doesn't ultimately feel right. And so that's the restless agitation 
when we're clinging to a view. So that we can actually train the mind to notice the irritation of having a fixed view. I, I've really noticed this over the years arguing with my spouse. Right. So whenever I have a sense of being right, right or fear of being wrong, you know, it's more often the former, you know, being right. <laughs> I'm not proud of that. <laughs> Presumably it's the same with her, but you can talk to her. <laughs> but anyway, to know, like, slowly noticing how unsatisfying that is. Because on the surface, it might initially feel good to think I'm right. But upon closer and closer inspection, more honesty, more care, it doesn't feel right. It feels off, being right, being better. Right? It's irritating. There's something, I have. the mind has to keep massaging the facts to make it make sense. And when I relax a little, it's there's that irritation of it not making sense. Better than, worse than, same as. It doesn't make sense. What makes sense is a kind of humility, what I talked about last week, if you weren't here, which is a kind of openness or non-fixedness of the mind. Like Again, it's just so good when we're talking about some of these Buddhist concepts to immediately check it out in your own mind. Do we need now, in this moment, as we're sitting here together, do we need a fixed sense of who we are or how we stack up? We don't actually need a fixed identity. We don't need to hold to it. But in any moment, it can be used as a skillful means to help illuminate the situation to help us navigate what we should say or not say or what we should do or not do, then these frames, these identities, these ways of looking at our social dynamic, looking at relationships, we pull them out, we use them and get some clarity, but we don't cling to it. We don't cling to the clarity because clarity is in the moment. It's a momentary phenomena. And this is so interesting, like, again, just because there these moments in intimate relationships can be so impactful for those of us, you know, with dear friends or intimate partners, <coughs> where we're having a discussion or an, or an argument or some struggle, some disagreement. And there can be moments where there's real clarity, like somebody says something or something enters into the dynamic, the argument, and there's some momentary clarity where we see what we weren't seeing. Like we see, oh, I'm really hurting. I didn't realize I'm really upset. And we can somehow convey that and that clarifies the situation. Or the other person, you know, sort of calls us on some stuff that we hadn't been seeing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I own that. That was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid of letting go of that. I'm afraid of, I don't want to see that. I don't, that's, that's a yucky feeling. But you're right. You know, I did that. I said that. I was thinking that way. I was p- 
putting that on you in that way that you just described. Right? And there's some clarity. But that, how long does that clarity last? But, but the thing is, just like when we're unskillful, like I was saying at the beginning of the talk, we lay it down on the body. Moments of clarity also make an impression on the body. The impression is, if we can have one moment of clarity, we can have another moment of clarity. So the impression that's left, we don't get to hold to that clarity. Because if we do, we're starting to fix to a view. Oh, this is the truth. This is who I am. This is who you are. See, that won't help so much. But what helps is the understanding that clarity can be, in a sense, reignited. It can be reestablished. We did it once, we can do it again, we can do it again, we can do it again. And this is that skillful use of frames. This is why we study history. Right? We don't want to cling to what happened in the past, but the patterns of the past, we can use that frame to say, like, is anything like this happening now? Right? We use those frames to illuminate the present. We don't get stuck on the past frames. We just see, can it help us understand what's happening now? And then what the confidence we gain isn't that we have the answer. The confidence that we gain is that the heart can feel and see clearly. Right? Which is always going to be moment to moment. It isn't what we see, what we understand is never anything to cling to. All we can do is get clear in the next moment and the next moment. That's what's so frustrating because from the thinking mind, the mind that's used to clinging to the truth, just tell me what's right so I can cling to it. You know, and I'll hold it. I'll, some of us, we build altars to the truths that we believe in, right? And we find friends to be part of a cult that we believe this, you know, we read new sites that support our cultish views of things, you know, and we strategically use people with opposite views to remind us how right we are and wrong they are, right? But see, that's going down that road that there's some view, some... uh, way of conceiving things, conceptualizing things, that is the answer. And the Buddha was very clear. He says, no matter how you conceive things, no matter how you conceptualize, it will never be that. Because the way it is, isn't a concept, can never be captured by a concept. But that doesn't mean, I mean, that's a concept, what I just said, right? And that can help illuminate how our minds tend to misuse concepts. So just like identities, concepts more generally, right, are useful, needed. So we'll we'll come back to this for at least one more week. Just this work started last week with humility, this week uh, talking about conceit. You know, we'll just keep looking at these aspects, these more grounded aspects of how our mind like the thinking mind, to give it a, a, a name, how we get confused by its constructions. That's a useful way to talk about what the Buddha pointed to as the cause for suffering. The mind, the thinking mind, skillfully, or, you know, it's, it's like, it's a real power to be able to 
construct meaning with language and mental images, right? We construct world. That's like what a dream is. Right? This is a very useful skill for humans to have. And maybe other animals have it in more simple ways. Certainly some do to some degree. Have this similar capacity to construct some meaning, to use memory, right? But we also have this capacity to misuse or to misunderstand this talent of our minds to conceive. And because we're frightened beasts in a very deep sense, we now get into the habit of using our mental constructions to make ourselves feel safe. And then we feel threatened by any experience that challenges our mental constructions. And most of this happens under the radar, unconsciously. We're feeling anxious about challenges to our fixed ideas, our identities. We have forgotten, basically, how to use this amazing talent to imagine, to tell stories, to think. It's a really impressive development through evolution to be able to construct amazing realities with our thoughts and language. It's like Joseph Goldstein, who was here last week. Some of you maybe heard him. He used to say, it's like children you know, dressing up as pirates when they were kids for Halloween or whatever, and then being frightened by their own costume. You know, it's kind of like that. I mean, it's almost that silly. I mean, even something that feels so reasonable, like imagining our death, and then having a real fear of mortality when we imagine dying, however you might imagine it. But to remember that that's sort of like dressing up as a pirate and looking in a mirror and freaking out. Because death is not now. I'm not saying it won't happen. It seems like it will happen. <laughs> right? But we don't know what it is. I'm assuming, presuming, if you do, please speak up. Right? I mean, we know kind of that that process happens. So there's uh, all kinds of things that, you know, we both entrance mental projections that we're entranced by. Like if I imagine a future for myself, that perfect future where I'm happy and I have what I want, you know, it can be very seductive, that idea, that conception. Or if I construct some horrible idea of what might happen to me today, that can really scare me and throw me off. So it's really... We want to respect the power of our imagination to screw, to screw with us, you know, to mess with us. So anyway, we have a few minutes before we need to end. It would be nice to hear from one or two of you your own thoughts about this topic that comes to mind or questions that you might have. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth. You want to start us off, Haya? Maybe I'm missing the boat on something, but just towards the end here as you're talking about you know, fixed views and whatever, and mental con- um, constructs, concepts. What about, I was thinking about, it came to me, you know, like the five precepts. Aren't those mental constructions, but yet we, isn't that like a fixed view, though? We don't do harm to others. 
Well, Do you know what I'm saying? Or yeah, uh, we want identities, we want concepts. So the concept uh, not doing harm to others, right? Then you see, when I'm about to take something that's not mine or about to sort of lay into somebody because I'm angry and they've, I feel like they've insulted me, right? Then that concept that I've repeated in my mind, I undertake the training not to harm other living beings, it shows up and it frames the present moment situation in a way that it illuminates something I might not have seen, like what you're about to say might really cause some harm. Is that what you want to do? Right? So that's how we use these concepts to illuminate the present moment. Yeah. But to walk around with the conceit, I'm the person who's committed to non-harming, what have you committed to? You know, or... You know, we can turn it into, and we do, it's sort of like a, a source of pride. I mean, this can happen like among monastics, for example, or other people who are deeply committed to a spiritual path, you know, and they've like ordained or have jumped through some hoops and they wear a special costume and they've got a special name and it can b- turn into a kind of conceit, right? And so, but... It's like here in the insight meditation in the lay tradition, you know, we don't have too many of those things like other spiritual religious traditions. You know, I mean, teachers sit up a little bit so the sight lines are better, but we don't wear separate costumes. We don't have different names. We don't do a lot of that, right? Precisely because we're trying to avoid unnecessary projections from others and unnecessary conceits from within in that. Right? Because, oh, I'm the person who takes the precepts every day. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Thanks for the talk. It was very illuminating. Um, I just, I know that you said we're going to talk about this some more, um, but I wonder if you could um, go into the the release of the heart a little bit more in terms of um, the the path with this issue of conceit. How does that happen? Yeah, it's the, where we really get the taste of release is when in real time we catch the mind in conceit, with a conceit, right? The mind is clinging to some identity, right? And if we're really seeing that as opposed to lost in the conceit, the wisdom is really seeing that, then there will be a pretty quick loosening of the conceit, kind of an energetic releasing of the heart. And the thing is, you'll, the mind will see a few things, or wisdom will see a few things. One, that the co- conceit was unnecessary. Two, that the, the releasing of the conceit feels good. It's like putting down a load that a moment before I didn't know I was carrying. And then the third thing that's seen is that it doesn't get in the way of functioning like skillful responding to whatever should be done, needs to be done in that moment. Because it, it actually opens up, the, the mind is more nimble in terms of seeing what needs to be said here, or how I should be quiet here, or whatever needs to be done here. Because there's not the distraction of protecting a view or a sense of self. Because as that is removed from the picture, the need to protect a sense of self, then the the lack of clinging gives the mind sort of abilities to look at the present moment from different angles because it's not 
set with one particular view, right? So it can like empathetically take another view, like how this might be from the other point of view, or even from a third or fourth or a fifth point of view, because it's not needing to be fixed. And then a second answer to Shannon's comment about like what does release feel like, look like, is just w- not when we're in a charged place where we notice a conceit and then sense the release of it, but just in more light, easy moments of our life, just bring up this topic. Like when you're not having to interact a lot with other people would be a, a fun place to experiment. And just do some activities without conceit. Just imagine doing something like walking from your car to the grocery store or doing the dishes or playing with your dog or whatever it might be, but just see if you can abandon, like see how unnecessary it is to do it with a sense of self. Do we really need that? I mean, it's something we're going to need to pull out in moments, but it's really nice. What really helps us hold it skillfully identity skillfully is seeing moments where we can put it down because then we know how to pick it back up in a light and skillful way because we put it down and that generally we won't learn to put it down except in places we feel pretty safe places that are less charged in your life and you just have to figure out where that might be but you can get a real sense like being alone for some people, but not being alone for other people, right? It just depends on where you feel more safe. Yeah, thanks, Shannon, for bringing that up. Yeah, Robert, you get the last comment, and then we'll have to end. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.